God does have amazing grace for us. Amen? Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Children's Church, you are dismissed. Sorry. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 through 29. This is the church of Tyre, Tyre. And to the angel of the church of Tyre, Tyre, write the words of the Son of the Son of God, who has eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are like brazen bronze. I know your works, your faith, your love, your service, your patient endurance, that the latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her are thrown onto a great tribulation unless they repent of her, wor- of her works, and will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But the rest of you, entire Tyre, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even I myself will receive authority from my Father. And I'll give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Let us pray. God, thanks for this morning. I pray for us this morning, God, that you, have you wrote this through your son many, many, many years ago, uh, that it would bring deep conviction to us, your church. God, as we've been journeying through this series, these churches, God, what would it be like for you to write us, Powell's Chapel, a a letter. I pray this morning, God, that we would hear your word and that we would walk away, we'd be transformed, we'd be different than what we came in today. Continue to lead us and guide us. I pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. If you've been with us for this series, we've been looking at these seven churches and the one of the writers that I was studying said it this way, that these letters are a picture of a, a, another picture. So if you can remember, the first church we looked at was the church of Ephesus, and Ephesus had lost its first love, and we'll see that again in the last church. That's the frame of these seven uh, letters. And then in the middle, we looked at uh, the churches that God gives uh, an altered uh, Uh, an encouragement, a word of encouragement. They had done no sin, and so he just offers them encouragement, what they're doing well. And then the middle of three churches that we're at right now is it goes from bad to worse. And last week we looked at the church of Pergamum, where Pergamum began to allow believers to, uh, unbelievers to come into their midst, and they weren't rebuking them of their sin. Now this morning we'll look at how the church here allows 
not only unbelievers, but this woman, Jezebel, to come into the church and begin to not just hear them, but now they begin to practice with them. They're in the practice of sinning. As we're before the church last week, Pergamon, they, they, just taught, they just allowed it to come in. They weren't practicing with them, and now this church, they begin to practice the sin. And we'll look next week at a church that gave themselves completely over to immorality and to sin. And so much so that the Lord Jesus himself says to the church of Sardis, it's like you look alive, but you're dead. And we'll look at that next week. And then we'll look again at a church that the Lord gives some encouragement. And then at the very last, probably the most famous of the seven letters, uh, the church of Laodicea, where he says, you, you are neither warm nor cold, you're nor hot nor cold, therefore you're lukewarm. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. We'll look at that in a few weeks. But there's some things that we must take into consideration today when we look at this church. Uh, for me, getting ready for this sermon this week, is, it was a very tough passage for me to study. It's the longest of the seven letters. And yet we'll see here in a moment that it's the smallest of the churches. But yet the Lord Jesus writes the longest letter to this small little church. And so this, this man, his name is Dr. Elderman says this. He says, the church of Ephesus is this. He's talking about the loyalty of these seven churches. And he says this of the church of Ephesus, the first church that we looked at. Loyalty to Christ, but they were lacking in love. The next church, uh, Samaria, Smyrna, he says this. They were loyal, but they were also tested. In their loyalty, they were tested. Last, the church we looked at last week, Pergamum, the writer says this. That he was loyal, but they were lacking moral passion. Their, their immorality was beginning to seep through. And now this last church, he wrote this about. He says this. It says this is the letter that Christ is going to use to show us that when we, when we start with immorality, how quickly we go into sin. And we practice sin. And he says this church has began to tolerate and allowed believers to tolerate and allowed evil to come into the church. And the churches begin to give themselves over to immorality. And this, this passage is going to show us the importance of not allowing evil to come into the church. You see, Jesus Christ says this in Ephesians chapter 5. If you'd like to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. You see, the Lord Jesus wants his church, his bride, to be pure and holy. So much so that this is what Paul tells us about the Lord Jesus and his love for the church. He sets it up this way. The, the passage is familiar. It's about how husbands are to love their wives. And he uses this example in verses 25 through 27. It says, husbands love your wives as Christ, what? As Christ loved the church. And this is what Christ did because of his love for the church. He said he gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, make her pure, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's his word, the word of life, the Bible. How come? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be what? Holy and without blemish. That is what the Lord Jesus did for the church on the cross. That is the reason for the cross. The cross was given to us by God through the death and resurrection of Jesus so that we, the church, not a building, but we as individuals of the church, would be holy and blameless. 
And therefore that we as a body, as a collective body, the church, would be holy and blameless. And so we see this church, that they began to allow people to come into the church and that these people that began to teach the things that were contrary to God's word began to infiltrate the church so that they were no longer pure and holy. So Christ, in this letter, has something against them. And he has against them that you have allowed wickedness in the church and you are now practicing wickedness. Unlike the church last week where they just allowed it to happen, they just allowed it to come in, they weren't in the practice of it yet. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we begin to allow things into our midst that we don't call out the way we talked about last week, that we don't call sin what sin is, and say it out loud and bring people into what Matthew talks about church discipline. When we don't talk to people about calling sin out, we begin to sit and what happens in this passage of scripture in Revelations, they not only allow it to come in, they begin to tolerate the sin. And so Jesus has something against that, the toleration of sin, the active pursuit of sin in the church, God has something against. And he writes this little church a letter about that the church the the outline is the same and will continue to be the same for the the letters we'll look this morning quickly at the city we'll look at the church in the city and then we'll look at the authority that the writer king jesus has he's going to set himself with authority to this is who is writing the letter this is how come i'm allowed to write the letter because i'm a man of authority and then we'll look at what he addresses the address from the king And then we'll look lastly at the affirmation of the king. He still affirms, he still gives hope and promise to the church. So we'll look very quickly at the city of Tyra Tyra. It was about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. Pergamum was the the northernmost city that has been written to. And this small church city is is about 40 miles southeast. It had no real protection. It was kind of the city that stood between two other major cities and remember last week we talked about Pergamum was this 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 massive city on top of a hill that was well protected and so this city was really used as an outpost to tell Pergamum hey the, the enemy is coming get ready and so because of that there this was a very flat land and they were conquered many, many times. They were defeated. Their city burned to the ground several times before the Romans finally came in and conquered this city. And once the Romans conquered the city, the city began to have peace because they had a massive army. The Roman army was there to protect it. The other thing that this city was known for was it, it was known as a, a business city. It's where all the business of all the other churches kind of Uh, got their goods from it was known we'll see in Acts chapter 16 there's this lady named Lydia that's their most famous person to come out of the church uh, here that this lady Lydia she sold a lot of goods clothing and that's what they were known for they supplied all the clothing for all the other cities that were around them so there's this business city a very small but very influential city um, that this church comes out of We know very little about the church. It's only mentioned one time, and that's in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. That's where Paul comes, and Paul is talking to these people, and Paul gives the gospel, and this lady named Lydia comes to know Christ, and then Lydia, out of that, comes, and she shares the gospel with her family, and she becomes a witness for the Lord, and many, many people, because of her conversion, 
come to know Christ. And that's about all that we know of this small, small church. And yet, God has a reason for writing it. And I think the reason that he wrote it is to show us the seriousness of sin and show us the seriousness of what happens when we don't take sin serious and call sin out. And so Jesus says, sets himself up as the author and the perfecter of this letter in verse 18 of chapter 2. It says this, And to the angel, if you remember, the angel means the messenger or the pastor of the church. To the angel of the church, write this, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes of flames and whose feet are as bronze. And so he's setting himself up. He says, I'm the Son of God. If you go over to chapter 1, he's contrasting himself. Not only is he the Son of God, but in chapter 1 he talks about himself as the Son of Man. And so he's going to first say in chapter 1, I'm the Son of Man. What he's saying in that passage in chapter 1 is, hey, I I am a lot like you. He is fully human. We have a God that became fully human and knows all of our suffering. He knows what it means to suffer the way this church suffered. He knows what it meant to be affected by evil, though he did not sin. And so here in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Not only am I what I said previously in chapter 1, I'm the son of man, but I'm also the son of God. He makes himself fully God in this passage. And so here he calls himself the son of God and shows again that he is the divine judge. There is a reason that he is allowed to say what he's about to say to this church. Because yes, I know what you've been through and because I've been able to withstand evil. I'm also the son of God and therefore I'm able to judge what you are allowing to happen in the church. It's very important that Christ sets himself up as the judge because if he does not set himself up as the as the judge, the what he'll say in the rest of this passage will kind of be pointless. You see, it's as if someone were to come to you or to me and they had no authority in our lives and were to tell us to do things that they had no authority to tell us to do. It'd be like Tennyson telling me it's time for bed. Like, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You're eight and you need to go to bed. And so Jesus is setting himself up with to say, I am the authority to tell you what to do. It's so important. And then he goes on to say to them, and this is the authority that I'm going to use with you. He calls himself two things. He says he has eyes like flames. That comes out of chapter 1, verse uh, 13 through 18. And he says he, he's got these bronze feet. And so what he's saying to this church is two things. The, the eyes of flames, he's saying to them, my eyes see everything. I can see everything. There's nothing hidden from me. There's no sin in your life that is hidden from me, he says to them. It's as if he's already setting himself up as the God of omniscience. He knows all things. He sees all things. So he is this all-knowing God. That's the first thing. That's what it means to have these flames, these flames, these eyeballs of flames of fire. He can see and knows all things. The next thing he says, he talks about his feet of bronze. That simply means purity. He's the God that sees all things, and he's a pure God that's unmovable. He's 
pure and unmovable. That's what it means for bronze back then was this metal that was used that was unmovable, that could not be, um, it was not malleable. It would not be shifted. Once it took form, it was not going to change. And so Christ is saying to them, I see all things, I know all things, and I will not be moved by anything. I'm an all-powerful God. I'm an omnipotent God, all-powerful and all-knowing God. And I write this to you, all-knowing and an all-powerful God. Jesus is setting himself up and saying, I'm all-knowing and I'm all-powerful, and therefore I have the authority to judge what you are doing. I think that is scary to know that we got of God and Jesus that can judge us, has the authority to judge us. And now this is what he's going to judge. Verse 20. He is going to address the church. He says this in verse 19. I know your works. Remember that word know is in every letter. He's telling them I am an intimate God with you. I know these things about you. I'm in relationship with you. I know these things about you. And what does he know? He says he knows these things. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. Basically, there's four things that Jesus knows about this small church. He knows first what? He's saying the word works means all the the rest of those four things. I know the works. What are the works? He says, I know your love and your faith. He's saying, I know your love for me. I know your love for other people. I know your, the love that you have, the agape that love that you have. And he's saying, out of, that, out of your agape love, the love that you have, you do this. You, you have a faith. You are faithful because of your love for me. So he's saying to this church, I know this about you. I know your love, and I know your faithfulness. And because of your love and your faithfulness, he says this in verse uh, 20, 20, 19, excuse me. He says, I know your love and I know your faith. I know your service and I know your patience. He's saying out of your love for me and out of your love for other people, out of your faithfulness to me, you serve others well. And then he says this. He says your patient endurance. Remember, the church of all, four, all seven of these churches is under extreme persecution. He's saying, even under your persecution, because you love me, and because you're faithful to me, and because you serve other people, you are being persecuted. And because you're being persecuted, I see that you are remaining faithful in your persecution. You are being steadfast in all that's going on. And so Jesus is saying, this is what you're doing well. This is what you're doing right. He's affirming them. And then he says this. He said, not only do I have this all for you. He said, but this also, your greater, the latter things exceed the, the things before. Basically what he's saying in that passage, Jesus is saying, all the things I just mentioned, you're doing that twofold. You're doing it even more than what other people can say. Your works, your love, your faithfulness, your patient endurance, it is, it is being seen by me and I see it and it's continuing in its growth. And so here's the church. It's faithful to God. It's got a love for God, it has a patient endurance for God, and it's serving their city well. And yet, this is what he says in verse 20. But I have this against you. You see, he just set himself up. All this that you're doing well, 
but I have this against you today. You see, I think so often we as a church and me as a person and you as a person, we can look at all the things we're doing well and say, man, I'm doing all these things well. And if I don't ask myself the question, if you don't ask yourself the question, what else is going on? We'll miss what the Lord would have for us. And so this morning, as I was preparing this week, I'm asking myself this question. I'm asking the, the self the question to the church. Is there other things other than our love and our faithfulness and our service and our, and our ongoing patience with the Lord? Is there other things that we may be missing this morning? Because if so, he would say this to us. But I have this against you. And what does he have against this small church? He says in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate, circle the word tolerate, I'll come back to that, the woman Jezebel. Jezebel most likely was not this woman's name, but she, they were using, Jesus used this as a, a prototype to the Old Testament woman Jezebel that you can see in 1 Kings 18 through 21. Jezebel married uh, the king of Israel and she began to lead this king in some very wicked ways. And because she began to lead this king in some wicked ways, the king began to lead the people of Israel in some wicked ways. So this king and this woman began to lead the people of God away from God himself. And so that's what Jesus is saying. You have a woman like this, like Jezebel, in your midst. And what is she doing? You have a Jezebel in your mix. And he says this is what she's doing. She is calling herself a prophetess. Circle that word. The word prophetess just means she is claiming to be a messenger of God, a prophet of God. So she's saying to the church, I'm a prophet of God, I hear from God, I'm God's messenger, and this is what God is saying. And what is she teaching that she is saying is coming from the Lord? Remember from last week, we talked about so often that people will come and say things that are from the Lord, and if we do not, if we do not know what God's word says, we'll fall victim into hearing that's what God says, and it's so far from the truth. But we have people that make it sound like that is exactly what the Lord says. They are cunning, baffling, powerful people that can twist the word of God because they're used by Satan in such a way to twist God, God's word that if we don't know God's word, that we'll just say, yep, makes sense. There's preachers on TV that say they, this is what God's word says. And if you sit down and listen to what they say God's word says and take it back to God's word, it's so far from the truth. There's a man in Houston, Texas named Joel Osteen that does that. He has taken the word of God and has put it into some books, Your Best Life Now. If you read God's word, there's not really a best life for the believer. And yet so many people have bought his book and lay claim to the book and love his book. And yet if you read the book and you take the book, your best life now, and you match it up with what God's word says, it is so far from the truth. And yet if you read Christianity Today or you read any of the websites, they say he's got the largest church in America, over 50,000 people going to his church. 
And they're being led astray by this man because he is very, very appealing. Like his words are like oil. They are smooth, even though he's got a crazy haircut. I, I don't understand that. I'm like, man, you're rocking the mullet still. That was, that's long gone. But people read the book, watch his show, go to his, go to his um, revivals, and man, holy cow, they love Joel Osteen. And yet the church is tolerating Joel Osteen. And so he says, you have this woman in your mix, and this is what she's teaching. She's teaching that she's saying that she's a prophet from the Lord and the Lord has told her to say these things to the church. She calls herself a prophetess and says and is teaching. What is she teaching and seducing his servants to do what? To practice sexual immorality and to feed, uh, to eat the food, sacrifice to idols. It goes right back to what Pergamum had allowed to come into the church. Right? Remember, the church of Pergamum, was they, they allowed people to go into sexual immorality and, and not talk about it. And they allowed people in the church to begin to eat the, eat the food sacrificed to the idols. They began to allow this to happen. And now this church not only has allowed it to happen, but they're doing it with them. It says this, the motto of the church there says this, if we can't beat them, let's join them. If we can't beat them, let's join them. That's what we in America have done. I, I mean, just this week alone on the ESPYs, I'm watching the ESPYs. That, that's the sports uh, award show. And here we give the Courage Award to a, a transsexual. And people in the audience that claim to be believers are clapping. And that's the Courage Award. Wow. And believers are clapping all along the way, the church. We will have to give an account for that. We will, as believers, not as Americans people, as believers, will have to stand before a holy God and say, yep, I allowed it to happen. You see, remember what happened. We we can just look in our history of America and see how we just said, okay, we, we can't beat them, so let's just join them. Prayer in church. Let's not fight the fight. It's not that big of a deal. Abortion. Ah. We can go place after place after place after place after place to see how the church of America ha has not just allowed it to happen, but now is practicing it. It's sad to me. It is heartbreaking to me. And I believe that Christ is going to write the Church of America a letter and say, this is what I have against you. That is going to be one scary letter to read. So he says, you are practicing immorality, sexual immorality, and you are practicing eating food sacrificed to idols. I think what... He has even more than other ones to what I just said to, we'll get back to. They are now, it's not just the sexual immorality that God isn't okay with or the feeding of the, uh, eating of the idols that he's not okay with. It's the word tolerate. That's really what God has against this church. 
Because you can take the last two things, the sexual immorality part and the eating of idols part, and you can replace it with anything. If, if it comes first that we tolerate that, that's when we're in trouble. This church has began to tolerate sin. It's became a part of who they are. It's become a part of their culture. Just like in my house, fried chicken right now is a part of our culture. I'll eat it every day. It's got to be hot and spicy, too. But it's just become a part of what we do as a family. It's just become part of our, of our weekends to eat fried chicken. And if we begin to do this week in and week out, week in and week out, there will be a time 20 years from now that Jenny and myself and Tennyson and Cedar, we will forget when we began to let chicken in our house. I, I know it's a poor metaphor, but I won't remember, oh, there was this time that I had hot chicken from Hattie B's, the best chicken place on the country, and loved it and went there all the time. I'll forget that day because I began to tolerate it. And I'll sit down, and we as a church will sit down and say, when and how did that happen? We won't even remember. Another metaphor is like this. We, uh, we, the guys that we come into CP, we treat for addiction all the time. We, we ask them this question. We, we ask them, what, what's the color in your office? It's just what we want to know. What, what color have you painted your office? And most of them do not know. How come? Because they've gone there so many times, it's just become so familiar with them. And that's how sin can become part of the church. It's just so familiar with us, we don't even see it anymore when we begin to tolerate sin. I remember as a young boy watching TV and seeing some things on TV that just didn't seem right. And now today, some 20 years later, it's just part of TV. And that's my excuse. But I remember, I remember watching some shows and thinking, wow, they're really pushing the envelope here. I wouldn't have said that then. I'm like, wow, that's way out in left field. Now today it's just part of, part of TV. And that's what's happened to the church. Sin has be, just become part of the church. Sin has just become part of this little church. And now God goes on to address what he will do with sin. God will deal with sin. He will deal with your sin. He will deal with my sin. He will deal with the sin of the church. And this is what he said. And it's so beautiful where he starts. Because he doesn't start with his judgment. It starts in verse 21. It says this. I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to repent. God shows his love, his mercy, and his grace towards the sinner. Let's flip over real fast to 2 Peter. Chapter 3, verse 9. We'll start at verse 8. It says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. That's the heart of the Lord. The Lord sees sin. 
He sees all things. He told us that. He says his eyes are like flames of fire. So he sees all things. He sees all the sin. And yet he says this, I gave her a chance to repent. The same is true for us today. God sees what we're doing. And he is so loving and so gracious and so merciful to us that what he said through Peter in chapter 3, that he is patient, waiting, hoping that none would perish. That he's hoping that all would come to repentance. That offer is still true for us today. And yet this lady, even when God was patient with her, even when God had called her to repentance, it says this, I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. That is a sad verse to me. That even in God's grace, even in God's mercy, even in God's love, for people, that people can still refuse his forgiveness. Because like we talked about, so often sin is so fun. And sin is, it gives us a promise that can never deliver. And so people will say no to forgiveness and no to repentance to remain in their sin. And that's what this woman did. God gave her an opportunity to repent of her sin, to turn from it, to come back into good graces with the Lord, to come back into fellowship with the Lord. And she refused it. And so God said in her refusal, this is what I'll do. Verse 22. This is what happens when we refuse to repent of our sin. He says this, Behold, I will throw her onto a sick, sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. There's two things that this passage says. The first one is this. This is what God's going to do with those who sin. He said, the sickbed is just, is just another word for hell. Because I, I'm a righteous judge, and I'm a good judge, and I'm a great judge, and I'm an all-powerful judge, there will be consequences for sin. And he's saying to this lady, because of her sin, because of her lack of repentance, this is what I'm going to do for her to her. She will spend eternity in hell without me. That is the punishment of sin. There is no other punishment for sin other than that. There is no bartering with God. There is no me going before God and saying, I, I'd like this instead of this. This is how it's going to be, God says. I will send her into hell for all of eternity. And he said this he says, to the one who committed adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. He's talking about there's some believers in that, in that church, and he's saying to the believers here, this, this line is for the believers, that you in your sin will experience great tribulation. Your life is going to be horrible. We looked at that several weeks ago in Jonah. So often God sends tribulations into our life, not in order to what? To get us, but to draw us back to himself. And so he's saying to these believers that are committing adultery with this lady, that if you do not repent, I'm going to send things into your life to get you to the end of yourself so that you will repent. And so, so often the great tribulation of the Lord is a way for the Lord to draw us back into repentance to himself. Why? Because of what Peter says. 
that the Lord is slow to anger and he wants all to come into repentance. And so often God will use the things that we would never use to bring people into repentance. He says this, unless they repent of her works. Because when there's repentance, there's no longer need for tribulation. Because when we repent before a holy God, he will no longer have to send things into our life to draw us back to himself. That's not saying that, oh, if you repent, your life is going to be easy. No, God's word says if you repent and you come to know God, your life will be way harder because you will experience a tribulation from the world and not from me. There will always be tribulation for us as believers. Either as unrepentant believers and that tribulation comes from the Lord or tribulation because we've repented and we're in love with the Lord and we hate the world and therefore the world will bring us tribulation. There will be tribulation. You will never find that a Hallmark card, but you will have tribulation in your life, either from the Lord or from the world. I'd rather be from the world than I would from the Lord. He goes on in verse 23 and he says this, and I will strike her children dead. The word, that word children is not her physical children, but it's her spiritual children. Here's this woman that has gained so much power and authority that people have come to look like spiritual children or she's discipling them, if you will. And they have converted to her rather than converting to God. And God says, because of that, I will kill them. The same punishment that happened to her will happen to them. They will die because of their sin. And he says this. He's saying all this is going to happen for a reason. Verse 23. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And will give to each of you according to your works. Even in the tribulation of the Lord. God is saying it's for me and it's for my renown. It's for my namesake that people would know me even more deeply. Even when the Lord brings tribulation to other people. It's so that the people that see it will see that there is a holy and righteous God. It's about him. Even the tribulation, even this act of judgment isn't necessarily just for the people it's more so that the people will see God is a holy God God is always going to put himself on the pedestal to be seen by all he will do that because he is God and God wants no competition and God will have no competition so he will do all the things that he does so that he could be in display in all of his glory for all the world. I don't understand how or why he does it the way he does it, but he will do it. God will always receive the glory. Just as it is in heaven right now, it tells us in in Revelation chapter 4 that the angels are singing to him. They have put him on the pedestal even in this very moment. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That That is the song that's being sung for all of eternity. And all the angels are all around the throne room of God. And with their angelic voices, that's what they're screaming and crying and singing all day, every day. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. Does my heart say that? Does my heart cry that? Does my heart sing that? 
because he wants the world to know who he is. And then in verse 24, but to the rest of you who do not hold to this teaching, who do not who have not learned what some of the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I will not lay any other burden. He's saying there are some of you in the church that are holding fast to the scriptures, that are holding fast for your love for me, and you're not in sin. And because of that, I'm not going to lay any other burden on top of you, because the burden that is already laid on top of you is the persecution that you're facing in your church. He's saying, so I won't lay anything else on you, Only do this, he says to them. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Hold fast to what? Is what he commended them for in the very first verses. Hold fast what? To your love, your faith, your your service, and your patience enduring. Because when you hold fast to that, he makes them a promise. I'm coming back. That is a promise from the Lord. The Lord's return. He promises us his return. Amen? He goes on and says this, I'm coming back. And then he gives the affirmation to the church, to those who would repent and those who are holding fast in verse 26. It says this, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them, and this is how he'll rule them. As I myself received authority from from the Father, I give you that same authority. He's saying there will be a day that you will no longer be in persecution But those who persecuted you, you will rule over them the same way that I rule over them. That is an amazing passage of Scripture. That God will give us through his son Jesus and the life and death and resurrection of Christ. That we will have the same authority over those who have persecuted us as who Jesus Christ has himself. If we what? Hold fast to him till he comes. And the last thing he says this. And I'll give him the morning star. That is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus saying, I will give you myself. I am the morning star. You who conquer, you will have me for all eternity. That is the great promise of the Lord. That if you're a believer here this morning, I know I said this a few weeks ago. If you're a believer here this morning, this is the only hell you will ever know is this planet. And for you that don't know the Lord, this is the only presence of God you'll ever feel. So if you're a believer, this is the only hell you'll know. And if you're an unbeliever, this is the only heaven you'll know. And God is saying to us, repent, repent, repent. Do you tolerate sin in your life? Do I tolerate sin in my life? There's three things that we see from this passage that I close. I hope that we see that sin is serious. The next thing that we see is that Jesus always judges sin. And the last one is so beautiful. It's what we sang this morning. Amazing grace, amazing grace, amazing grace. God's grace through Jesus is for the faithful. God gives grace to the faithful. He gives himself to those who remain faithful. That is amazing grace this morning. Let us pray. God, this is a scary passage. I pray for us here at Powell's Chapel that we have not tolerated sin. That there isn't sin in our midst that we 
have become so accustomed to that we don't even see it anymore. God, I pray that you would rip the scales of our hearts and our eyes away so that we would see sin. And then because of that, God, I pray that you'd give us great boldness to call it out. That we would purge sin out of this place with your help, your divine help. Because, Jesus, you gave yourself for the bride. You gave yourself for this place so that we'd be holy and we'd be righteous. And sin is what smears the shalom of God, the peace of God. So God, bring us to a place of repentance. And God, for those that you would say, oh, you've remained faithful, let us hold fast to that. Let us remain faithful, God, because the persecution will continue. Let us be reminded that you give yourself freely to those who call themselves believers. I pray this in Christ's mighty and famous name. Amen. If you're here this morning, you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal